Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Dr. Anna Murad, the TIPQC Infant Medical Director, sits down with Dr. Adriana Bielostowski, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Clinical Physician at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Bielostowski shares with us today best practices in relating to the Latinx populations. We talk about safe sleep, using interpreters, and share a lot of tools and resources to help bridge cultural and language gaps in perinatal care. Let's get to it. Hi, this is Anna Murad, the Infant Medical Director for TIPQC, and we are happy to have Dr. Adriana Bielostowski here with us to talk about Spanish language patients and answer our questions. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Anna. It's always a pleasure to be able to be with you guys and continue on having conversations about a population that is growing in the United States. Wonderful. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. Can you give us a little bit um, of your background and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So I was born in Mexico City and I did my medical training in Mexico City and the National University. Our last year of your training, you go and work in a rural area. And I was very fortunate to be able to choose the area where I worked. And that was in the south part of Mexico working with indigenous population. You go there and you're the only physician working with 5,000, with a population of 5,000 people. So you become very humble because there's no resources. You uh, realize that you really need to learn much more than just the training that you have. Because in Mexico, we have seven years of training. You finish training and you're allowed to be a physician. So at that point, I realized I really wanted to be a better physician, and I wanted to go back to Mexico. So I was able to come to the United States, and I moved to New York, where I did some obesity research, and that's where I met my husband. Then we moved to Miami to do my residency in pediatrics. It was a very hard residency. We were on call every third night, so it was crazy. But I, my first son was born there. Then I moved to Michigan to continue my training, but I worked with migrant farm workers. And eventually my second son was born. And then I moved here to Nashville 16 years ago with the intention to work with the Latino population that has always been endeared to my heart. So you wanna tell us a little bit more about that work that you're currently doing at Vanderbilt? Yes, so as you may be aware, around 10% of the population in Davidson County is Latinos. Most of the families are coming from Mexico, but there's recently been a large migration from Central America, as well as Venezuela, and we are seeing some also Puerto Ricans. So at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital at the doctor's office tower, there's a primary care clinic. And in that clinic, we have a little clinic of our own, which, because we really see around 15 to 18% of the children seen in the clinic are Latino. 
So what we have is a direct care clinic. So there are some providers that see patients by themselves. And then we also have a residency program that allows the residents to have their continuity clinic for three years with Spanish-speaking families. The other thing that we've strived to do in our clinic is have front desk and nurses as well as MAs that are Spanish-speaking. We haven't been always able to have that as a continuity, but I think it's super important to have. Another program that we started in 2015 was Group Visit, which was a wonderful model, which we were seeing kids from two weeks on to two years old in a group setting. The group setting allowed parents to ask questions and to spend more time with families. We would have three to five moms with babies of the same age and have an hour and a half. With that, we also build a network of information really from the social work of needs. For example, we realized that many parents did not know how to fill out the social security or even ask of the social leadership. So we started learning of the needs these families have because we're spending an hour and a half with them talking from feeding, sleeping, development, how to set limits and discipline. And I extended on purpose to two years of age because it is a time that we can do a lot of parenting skill building with families in it in the group. So you could see like how do they put time out. Time out is not a concept that exists in, in, in the Spanish language families or how to do de- positive parenting. So that's another program we have. And by last, we have been fortunate enough to also join with one of the uh, co- community organizations and we're being able to see children of unaccompanied children and we give services to them. So those are a few of the things that we are doing at Bandy. Such an incredible amount of important work. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences in terms? So we hear Hispanic, we hear Latino, we hear Latinx. What would be the best way and the most appropriate term, least restrictive term when we're referring to Spanish language patients and their families? And what terms should we not be using? So it's really important that Latinos have a language in common and share cultural aspect. There are also differences among them, right? We know that this group shares a culture rather than a race. So remember that it's not a monolithic group and the differences are driven by socioeconomic, Uh, status, educational level, number of years living in the USA. So Hispanic really refers to people who speak Spanish or who are descendant of those Spanish-speaking countries. The term was popularized in the 1960s, and it was later introduced in the census to study aspects of the population in the 1980s. Latino is more refers to the geography, specifically people from Latin America, which including Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. And this was also introduced in the census in the 2000s. Latinx by itself, that has the X at the end, is a gender neutral. As uh, people know, the Spanish language is very gender related because Latino means male or a Latina ending at the A would be a female. It's, it's, it's difficult to convert the whole language into non-gender bias. So Latinx has been adopted, but really this label is used mainly on academia, media, corporation, or local government. 
there is a very interesting Pew Research poll and said that only 3% of the population use it and one of four have heard about what Latinx is. So uh, what I usually try to do is where you're from. So I'm Mexican or you are from El Salvador. That might be a way to avoid and be less, it's still putting them together, but also giving them a, a very specific place where they're coming from. Are there any terms that we should really avoid using? Terms that we should avoid using? I think all of the terms that are disrespectful is always, I think it's more like in terms of putting people into one category without seeing their individuality. I think that would be more where I would go too. Absolutely. I know that each region has their own set of cultural expectations and beliefs. Are there some that you would like to highlight that involve pregnant women or postpartum women or babies or family structure? Oh, that's a great question, Anna, because I think one of the, the ways we are going to be able to engage families and really connect is also understand the way the family structure works. It is a very family-oriented culture. They're receiving information from the grandparents, even though many of the families that live in the United States, grandparents live in outside, but they still communicate through uh, telephone, medium, and other ways. So if you make decisions or discuss decision with patients, it's important to us who else should be involved in this conversation and how do I help you many times with conversations with grandmother who's telling you to do one thing or the other. So just be very mindful of including the family, but also trying to understand that there's, there's a huge respect for older people. So you might tell mom to do something, for example, tell grandmother not to buy sodas. It's, it's a, an example. That is not ever going to happen because there's respect to the older and they do not dare to having this conversation. So it might be a, an idea to think, how about bringing grandma if we're having issues of food or the way that they're feeding the kids. And then you have a conversation with mom and you take the daughter or the son out of the loop. The other is uh, there's a lot of respect towards the doctor. And respect means that they might not want to question you in front of you. They will say, yes, yes, but do not follow some of the advice you give. So it's important to try to open a conversation and make it, you have to build trust before they can actually not agree with you. So building trust is very important. Not to be businesslike. You have to be kind. I think when I go into a room, I can ask, right now with COVID, I usually go and say, so how are things in COVID? Has your family been affected? How can I help? This just breaks the barrier of saying, I'm not here just to see the throat. I'm here to see you as a human being. And I'm concerned of your family. When they see that, you see them as a, an entity, not by themselves, but as a family and as a community, they appreciate it and they uh, open themselves to you. There's two things that I uh, think are not very common in the Latino to discuss, and that is postpartum depression. I would tell you that's a very hard one. Some of the mothers don't believe that it exists, feel sh- ashamed about it, so they don't discuss it. So it's important, even with the screenings that we do, is go through 
the screener by itself and say, so how are you feeling today? And just not to uh, expect that they're going to write it in the screener because there's literacy issues. The, the screeners are not always well translated and they're translated for a certain culture, for not culture, for a certain country. So we have EPSD and we've had experiences that one of the questions, the way it's uh, translated, can be offensive to others. So just, I think it's the sitting down and asking, how are you at the end? The other is important is physical exam. When you examine their children, I would say you have to explain what you're doing to the child. Well, I am going to lift him up. Parents are very peculiar in the way you handle their child. And if they think you're not being gentle, they will not come back to you. So if you go in and look at the ears, say, I'm going to hold the head. It's he, Their baby's not going to like it. I'm not hurting the baby, but I am going to look through the ear and I need your help. And so they understand that this might make the baby cry because babies hate them to grab their head. They appreciate that. So it's also a way to engage them into what you're seeing, what you're doing, and teaching families. I think there's a lot that could be translated to every patient in what you just said, right? I'm always very mindful before the hip exam to say, your baby's probably going to cry. You want to prep them and make sure that they understand what you're doing. So tell us a little bit. We have had Spanish language families who come in who prefer to do breastfeeding and formula feeding in the hospital, even when their long-term plan may be exclusive breastfeeding. Do you have some background to share about this practice? And are there some effective ways that we can reassure families that the baby doesn't need formula that quickly? Are there any talking points that you find to be successful? That's a hard one. I've always struggled with it because I think at the end is building trust. And I think there's a lot of external influences that come into account. So I think targeting from, if we could talk to OBGYN and make them have conversations about the importance of breastfeeding is a key into this. They're seeing them for a longer time of period and and would allow discussions. The other one is like a prenatal care visit. I think that is an amazing thing. I've had some, not that many because it's not established as well in our practice, but prenatal are incredible. In terms of talking points, one is really understanding why they are doing what they are doing. For example, I find that there's a fear that they're not going to be feeding enough. And when they don't understand that the letdown of the uh, milk takes a couple of uh, days, they get very worried. There's also very little social support, if you think about it, about breastfeeding, because grandmother is by the phone, but it's not sitting beside you to help you. So also finding and connecting them to groups or to places that would encourage breastfeeding would be amazing. I don't think we have the capability yet of doing that. The other has to do with the amount of information they receive. In our countries, in Latin America, there's a lot of big campaigns very targeted in increasing breastfeeding and the benefits. So they're listening to it through media. Radio is a huge way of getting information out and television. So the big picture, what we talked is we need to just address it at different levels. It's not only the level of the one-on-one visit. I think it's also breastfeeding campaigns to promote breastfeeding. The other one is 
debunking the myth that children need uh, formula. I think there is a myth that children need the formula to sleep better, to uh, grow. There is a myth that a healthy baby is a little bit of a chubby, obese child. So we need to talk about that expectation. We need to clarify that sometimes babies with breastfeeding wake up earlier sometimes, and, and but that doesn't mean always that they're not eating enough, but we feed them more often. So it's just having the conversation with the moms about what their fears are. So one of the other things that is important is the breastfeeding support that the parents have. So it, we, it's very hard to get breast pumps. The work that most of the Latino population, their jobs are not having support. They don't have a room to go and breastfeed. They don't even have breaks to go and do to breastfeeding. So I think parents are thinking, while at the same time want to do the best for their child, they're also thinking of how they're going to adapt to a world that is not promoting breastfeeding. I think it took me some time to understand that even though the law protects that ability to breastfeed and pump at work, if you're not in a position where you can complain about it, then the law isn't very helpful. And talking about the law, it's also important to let them know that by law, they're protected even outside and they can. Because we live in a world that there's a lot of racism. And moms have said, no, they're looking at me. They tell me to cover myself. And when I'm breastfeeding, it's not a culture that always promotes breastfeeding outside even. And when you're living in a marginalized uh, population, anything that makes you stand out, you want to, to not happen, right? Absolutely, which is a sad statement of where we are, but we yeah. can all hope to improve. I think we are. <laughs> so tell me a little bit, you were so kind to talk about safe sleep practices at our TIPQC learning session about safe sleep. Would you want to hit a few of those highlights again? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So one of the things that is really important to be a good communicator and understand your families is you need to know your own biases. So if you are able to know your biases, you can give information much better and build trust. There are some myths in our, not all of the Latino families, but all, there are some of them that the baby does not know how to sleep alone that they may get sick, that you need to protect them, especially in winter time. Winter time is an area in a time where parents are very worried that the cold weather is going to make their children sick. So another tip that I would say is when I ask, I ask how they're putting their baby to sleep, I assume that they are putting their baby to the side. I think much in the Latino culture, they put their baby to the side much more than they put it on their uh, stomach. So I'd say, oh, so you're putting the baby to the side when he sleeps. And they said, oh, yes. And then I say, I explain to them why it's dangerous in terms of saying that they can't move their head adequately and vomit can go into their throat, that they're, they can't move their head to side. And the same with sleeping on their, on their stomach. I use a lot of images about a crib and what should be in the crib. So the ideal crib is the one that has bumpers and beautiful things around it. So I sit down and talk to, and show them this is what we expect your crib to look like. They are very afraid of their child hitting their head or getting stuck. So I do explain that the bars are closer and that if, if the hand gets stuck, they can pull it out. But the, the risk 
of having bumpers is higher than not having them. The other one is the mattress. I do talk about the mattress being hard because their head, their neck is very floppy. And if they don't have a, a hard mattress, they won't be able to move their head. Co-sleeping is also extremely frequent. I think it's due to space. There's also convenience of breastfeeding, the perception of safety. And I also find that single parents or parents with different working hours usually co-sleep. So addressing their fears is the only way to really be able to make a difference. So you have to explain to them that it's super dangerous, that they can fall asleep on them, that the baby can fall out of the bed. But it's also, it's engaging them. It's at the same time, there's no right or wrong words that you can use. It's just engaging and listening. Having that conversation and getting their input as to what they need rather than just coming at them with a lecture. So let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. Can you tell us some of the health disparities uh, that we're seeing with COVID? Talk a little bit about the COVID vaccine and what messaging we should be doing. So yes, coronavirus has affected many of our families in very different ways. So early reports from hot bed areas like Oregon and, and New York showed that the incidence and death rates among Latinos and others of color were much higher. And the other thing that we were seeing is that people that have health insurance are tested more for COVID than those that don't, even if the test is free. And we have 19% of the population in the United States are uninsured. It is also estimated that only 16% of U.S. Latinos can work from home. So Latinos are overrepresented in high-contact jobs, which is food, retail, hospitality, and many of their jobs do not have leave of pay. Latinos represented 27% of the population in poverty. So coronavirus exacerbates inequities of access of social support like food, housing, and we have a large percent of Latinos that are, live in food insecurity. I think in the United States, it's 16%. In our clinic, we're seeing higher levels of food insecurity, and they cannot stock up on food or buy online. Other is housing instability. We see that a very high percent of Latinos live in, in housing instability, which is one-third of the cost of their salary goes to pay for housing. So we're seeing a lot of families with very difficult situation. The other one that we're seeing is that half of the coronavirus cases among pregnant women are Latinas. So more than 14,000 pregnant women have tested positive for the coronavirus. So it's a very high hit population. In terms of the vaccine, there are studies that are coming out showing that the demographic makeup of vaccination is unfortunately very low in Latinos. The percent of people that are wanting to get the vaccine and are getting the vaccine. There's a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Some of the strategies that have been trying to be implemented is use very simple language. Avoid difficult terminology. Be very consistent and transparent with your message. That means that if I don't know the answer, say, I don't know, let me find out. And more now that things are changing so fast, if parents understand that you are not just saying things without basis, they will trust you. The message must reach Latino families through a variety of ways. We need to have messaging through 
television and radio and target the media that they use, ask about their fields, show interest and be aware of how they live in a society where there is a lot of racism. So you need to be very respectful and empathetic. Don't just say, oh, no, that's not true. Just say, explain why you're not thinking that's the way, that, why you defer on, on, on the way you think from them. But just don't say, oh, no, that is not true. Because it's like saying he's not sick, he just has a virus. He is sick, but I don't have a way to help him at that point. So talk about the misinformation. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories coming out in many of the sites. So ask them where they're getting their information. And one of the other things that we could do is, yes, we know that there are sites, well, go to places where they worship, to where they buy. So build places where they trust people and give out the information. Those are great points. Along those same lines, what are your favorite local, state, and national resources? Where do you direct people in the Nashville area or across Tennessee? Any ideas? So I think one of the organizations I work and I love uh, working with is Conexión Américas. Conexión Américas has done a great job in helping families from the socioeconomic part. So they help them uh, with buying houses, for example, doing taxes. But they also have worked very hard on getting food and working with schools. So it's one of the organizations I enjoy working with them. They are very good. Other organizations that work with immigration, which is one of the issues we see in families, because what we see is what we call mixed family status, in where maybe the, the, their children are born here, but maybe the, one of the parents is not born here. So their access to care or to services is decreased. Or even one of the siblings of the child might not have insurance. So uh, JFON is one of the organizations I really like to work with, Justice for Our Neighbors, as well as Turk. They are very good organizations. And Turk and Jayfon do have also offices around the state. Justice TNAP, of course, I have to say, <laughs> is working very hard with that. And we have just created a, a migrant council, migrant and refugee. We're working on that. In the national level, I think one of the organizations that works uh, with Latinos is called Latinos US. It used to be La Raza. The AAP has great information. Two other organizations I use a lot to get information specifically is understood.org. They have a website in English and in Spanish and zero to three. Excellent. And we will put links to these groups on our podcast. And then can you tell us, Turk, is Tennessee Immigration and Refugee. It is Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. It's a wonderful agency for sure. You were talking a little bit about mixed immigration status. If we have a patient or or a family member with immigration concerns, what do we do to help? What are some tips or some ways that we can be mindful and respectful, but yet connect them with resources if they have questions? So one of the things I always do is make them feel safe. If I'm going to ask a question about immigration, I'm always preempted. Like, we have these resources to give, but they depend on your immigrant status. And and then I ask, what is the status? And then I also tell them that I'm not going to document this in the chart. 
And there are ways that I use with the social worker and not having it there. This is not, this is, a, for example, a mother born in, in El Salvador. It doesn't mean anything because people that are born in, outside the United States can have citizenship, but it's a way to not put, they're not citizens, or I could put they're not eligible for certain uh, services. So always preempt why you're asking the question. And it's about saying, this is the reason, and it's because we can help you this way. What if you don't have a social worker in your clinic? Are there some ways that you can connect? Would you refer them back to the agencies you mentioned earlier? Absolutely. So first, it's connecting to the patient and making patient feel comfortable on giving you the information and the reason for it. And the next one is connecting to agencies that work with this, the population and know how to navigate systems. That's the other thing you need to, I always make a big uh, point of. We come with a bias about parents knowing how to navigate the system and that they should learn how to navigate the system. We, we are in a society that we want to empower families. So the concept of empowering families might be very different in the Latino community. So the way, for example, I empower a family is I give them the name of the person in that agency that speaks Spanish. So I know that they will connect. And it doesn't mean that I'm not letting them learn about it. It's just a very different way that we empower families. Letting them navigate a system that is not built for Spanish-speaking families is not empowering. So just giving them here, connect with this website is not empowering them because you haven't even asked if they have access to internet, if they know how to navigate the internet. So really, it's assuming that they have certain tools that they don't. So if you really want to empower families, you need to walk them a little bit more. So that's my other tip. If you really have immigration concerns, you have to really help them without them feeling, again, this system doesn't work for me or there's, there's, it's a difficult system to navigate. It is a, a very difficult system to navigate. Can you talk a little bit about interpreter services and if you are in an area of the state where you don't have easy access to interpreter services, we are required to do that and required to provide interpreter services for every patient encounter. What are some of the pitfalls or things that we should be looking at when we're utilizing an interpreter service? First of all, I want to point out something that we talk a lot about it. High school Spanish is really not sufficient. If you are working with Spanish-speaking population or any other population, there has to be a way that you can communicate with them a lot of medical errors can occur and it's not the right thing to do, truly. Using interpreters is very important. Even in like breastfeeding, we're talking about that. If you don't, how are you going to explain the whole concept of breastfeeding, how difficult it sometimes is, right? So having somebody that speaks Spanish is very important. We should not, and I know it's hard because some of this, of our pediatric practices don't have the resources but we should really avoid using people that are not trained. If you have a front office that speaks Spanish, well, maybe it would be a very important thing to invest on the front office to teach her how to be an interpreter or find somebody in the community that wants to be uh, an interpreter for your practice, but they need to be certified. 
we cannot be treating families not the right way. So, and the child should not be doing the interpreting is the other thing you. that I, Absolutely. <laughs> my other pet peeve is using the yes. child's interpreting. Yes. And we're seeing now a lot of like kids of immigrant families are navigating system. The school, who's navigating the system in schools, all of the kids, they are children. So they shouldn't be tr- interpreting for their parents. The other one that I think is really interesting is sometimes we assume that all the people from Latin America speak Spanish. So one of the things the other day, I I went into a room and I listened to the mom and I'm like, she barely speaks Spanish. So one of the things we're seeing is a lot of families that are, they have their native languages. A lot of families from Guatemala, the South part of Mexico, and just a funny fact, men are the ones that go outside to do business. So most of the men in those communities know Spanish very well, not as well as the moms. And many of the moms are the ones that are doing the care for their kids in terms of medical care. So if you start having difficulties in conversation and find that this is not going the right way, when you're using, for example, interpreters, do you speak another language? And can we access this other language? The other is, if I find that the parents are not understanding the interpreter, I ask the interpreter, thank you very much, and I try to get another interpreter. Because I, I have found that I've had interpreters that are not to, talking the same, and I don't know what it is. I don't use interpreters in Spanish, so I use interpreters in Arabic. But, and I do that very often. I think it's just being have, having that awareness because you can tell when people aren't understanding the conversation and you need to own up to it and address it in the moment and use the correct language for them if you can. Any medical words that are trickier? Anything that we should be careful when we're explaining so that we get the point across correctly without frightening the family or giving misinformation? Yes. So when you give information, you always have to have a very optimistic way truthful but optimistic if they seem that you're saying everything is like a very doom-like they will shut down immediately the other one is i I always love this one the flu vaccine the translation of the flu vaccine in spanish is gripe uh this the vaccine for the cold if you don't explain what the flu is that is different from the common cold they they will Uh, tell you that the vaccine does not work because it doesn't cure the common cold. So uh, it's very common, like, oh, no, I'm not putting it every time I give it. They keep on having colds. So it it, it is a misinformation about the name and the way you use it. So explain what the flu symptoms are like, and that is very helpful. Okay, so they, uh, and does that affect the way you, they, see it? Do they get scared or things like that? So remember when you are talking to interpreters and using interpreters, it is really important to explain some words. For example, I'll tell you jaundice. If you just say jaundice by itself, it will be, they'll think it's yellow. And so they'll just translate, yeah, the baby's jaundice. And if you don't explain what is your concern of the baby being jaundiced, they will not understand why you're doing all the work of putting them under the lights. So it's really important to say, yes, he's yellow because jaundice is yellow. And they might, an interpreter might just say, the baby's yellow. And if you don't explain, they will 
be scared and not understand the whole process. I think that's been the theme of the talk is making sure that you give good explanations and that you listen to your patient, which is incredibly important, listening to their patient and their family. What other tips do you have for us before we um, wrap up the call? I think it's just be curious. Our families want to learn from us, but I think we need to learn from our families. We need to acknowledge what is similar, but also acknowledge differences. And I don't think it's exclusively for the Latino culture. I think we are seeing it more and more with socioeconomic status, with literacy. So being very mindful about barriers that our families are facing, because we are now in a time that it's not really solving their strep throat. Uh, The strep throat can be treated, but if they can't understand how the prescription is given, how to access the medication, when to follow up, then you're not doing your job. So I think we need to expand our ways of working with families. Dr. B, thank you for this podcast. I think it has some really great lessons and I hope our listeners enjoy and learn a lot from this talk. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org. That's T-I-P-Q-C and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.